You're listening to Code Punk with Bill Ahern and Michael Zuhl, a podcast about the intersection between programming, technology, and the digital lifestyle. Hello there, Michael. How are you doing, man? I'm doing good, man. I actually hear you had a, a pretty great weekend the other day. You, you went and got to see the Misfits uh, on tour, huh? Yeah, it's a dream come true. Um, you know, I'd never even gone to the Madison Square Garden. Emma. I went one other time with my wife just because I wanted to go at least once in my life. Um, and I went and saw fish, which I'm not a fish fan. Um, but uh, yeah, so I saw the Misfits were playing with Danzig. I wouldn't have seen right, without right. Danzig. Yeah. Um, so I went Madison Square Garden. Um, my wife likes punk, but she's not, you know, it's nothing she would ever deign to play on her own. But uh, she did get exposed to The Damned, which is actually, they've been around since before The Misfits and kind of helped bring them up a little bit. And she actually really liked them because The Misfits have a very bluesy sort of um, kind of rock. I mean, because you know, punk rock in the 70s, and I, I won't get off too much into tangent, but punk in the 70s was inspired by like 50s rock and blues and jazz. Modern punk is inspired by old punk, so it's just derivative and it always sounds like, you know, you've heard it before. But The Damned is one of those bands who has a lot of texture and nuance because, you know, they're actually playing music that is inspired um, that isn't, you know, in the realm of, of punk rock. So the concert was fantastic and Danzig was unbelievably on point. He, his voice sounded just as crisp. Or I shouldn't say crisp, because if you listen to old Misfit songs, <laughs> the audio is always very poor quality. It's part of the charm. But he sounded great. Everybody played great. It was a great show, and I was really glad I had a chance to go see him. That's awesome. Yeah, I ask you about that because, I mean, you and I are roughly around the same age. We we grew up around the same things and uh, like a lot of the same, whether it's music or movies um, or technology. And it was interesting because we did a we did an Edward Snowden uh, podcast episode a couple of episodes ago. In fact, it wasn't that long ago, and we talked about his plight and kind of what he did. And it wasn't long after that that his uh, his biography autobiography was released, his memoir, uh, Permanent Record. And I was reading through it, and and much like us, he he roughly he basically he's a little younger than us, but he grew up around the same time, um, child of the '80s and early '90s, and so you see a lot of similarities uh, based on his life and childhood that that you wouldn't kind of old heads like us that you know grew up in the age of cyberpunk. And I, I wanted to follow up on that um, episode because, like I said, I did read the memoir, and I got a couple of key points that give a little more insight, and I'm. I'm going to go over these, but I'm going to go over them as if what he wrote was true. And of course, you're the hero of your own story. Um, so I'm sure not everything that was written in his memoir is 100% true. I mean, we I guess we all embellish a little bit, certainly in an autobiography. Um, but I'm going to treat it as if everything he wrote was true. And we're going to kind of go over those points to kind of flesh out some of the decisions that he made or the, the lifestyle that he had when he was younger and kind of his, uh, as he got into technology and as he moved forward to, uh, to do the things he, he's doing as a whistleblower. And of course, today Snowden is actually back in the news, not just because of his memoir, but because of the, the whistleblowing, um, that went on with the, the Ukrainian episode and, uh, and president Trump. And of course, a lot of people are talking about whistleblower and whistleblower protections and the way the administration has been treating this anonymous whistleblower kind of validates Snowden's uh, reasonings for not going through proper channels up into the government and just releasing what he released um, to journalists and fleeing the country, basically. 
Yeah, and it's surprising too that he did that at a time where he was he knew enough from the inside that even at the state that our national intelligence and leadership was at that time, of course, and that was the Obama era. Um, even then, he didn't see it as uh, kind of protective enough to kind of go through the normal channels. Can you imagine today? Well, I can't even imagine what um, what it must be like to have all of this sensitive information and literally very powerful people who are playing politics with what the nation really has a right to know. Yeah, it's it, 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 it's a it's pretty interesting, but I'm uh, pretty crazy at that, especially considering some of the spin being put on it. Um, but when when I look at kind of Snowden's early life, I mean, like I said, he's he was a child of the '80s and the '90s. So when he talks about early cyber culture and kind of how he he got involved in technology, we see a lot of same things like the bullet the early bulletin board systems, which he spent an awful lot of time on, um, and he was exploring websites um, that. Uh, you know, you could just view the source on the, the HTML and really nothing was protected. Um, so he was, you know, finding, finding holes and he actually had, um, alerted a company to the, the, one of the holes that he found. And when they called his, his family to, uh, to talk to him, when they called to talk to him, they realized they were talking to, to a teenager. I think he was like 14 or 15 at the time. Um, but he's also a military brat. And this kind of plays into some of his decision-making as well. He did bounce around a lot. His father was into electronics um, because of what his father did for the military. Now, he was a child of divorce. Eventually, his his, his parents got divorced. But um, the military lifestyle was highly influential on him. And in fact... It was, it was after 9-11, you know, it was during everything that was going on with, with the, he was working as kind of a, a freelance uh, web developer, web designer uh, when the Twin Towers got, got hit and that sparked something inside of him, or at least he says it did, that he wanted to serve much like his father. And it was kind of against what his family had wanted, but he did enter into the military. At least he signed up for the military and he signed up for an advanced program, but he ended up developing shin splints. And so they, they discharged him, but they put him on like an administrative discharge so that they didn't have, it was basically like a waiver. And so it would allow him to leave the military, but it would absolve the military of like any medical issues he may have developed after the right, fact. And he, yeah. And it's also not, it's a, um, cause it also allows you to avoid getting a section eight because there's right. not too many ways you can get kicked out of the military, um, outside of getting into a lot of trouble and administrative discharges is, is how that works. Right. And um, so that's kind of he had his one taste in the military and he kind of sunk into a bit of a, of a depression after that. And uh, it, it, he he basically um, had some health issues, but he started to realize that he could use the skill set that he never really saw as a career, um, the skill set that he was using as a hobby. And he could turn that into a way to serve, um, serve, you know, America and uh, he was a pretty skilled systems administrator. So we, we had a brief talk in which, you know, in, in the last episode, I wasn't quite sure how skillful he was other than the fact that he worked for Booz Allen Hamilton and, you know, the government and took took some of these files. Um, but clearly, based on the memoir, he was pretty advanced in his systems administration skills. Um, he could program. Uh, but he admits to not being that great of a programmer, although systems engineering and, you know, writing scripts in order to um, cobble together and search out information he right. was quite good at. So so he, here's somebody who was um, really smart and actually did have the skill set that you would assume kind of a, a hacker um, to actually have. Uh, a lot of people actually, or at least the government, like when he was 
when he when it was initially discovered that he he had leaked all of this, the government tried to basically say, oh, well, you know, he he wasn't. He didn't work for the CIA. He didn't work for the NSA. He was a contractor. He worked for Dell. Um, and he was a contractor for most of his career because, of course, military con- – I mean, you, even around me – um, you know, we have a couple of areas where there's government contractors and you basically work for a, co- a company that works for the government. And the way he kind of explained it was that, you know, you, you might be working for Dell, but you're basically working for the NSA and you're there for, you know, 10, 15 years or whatever. And a lot of times the contracting companies change, but the personnel don't. So your contract gets bought out by another company, gets bought out by an- another company. So mostly he did work as a contractor, although he did work uh, for the CIA explicitly for a time. In fact, he uh, graduated from um, a training facility called The Hill, which is actually not far from me. It's in Warrington, Virginia. And he goes into detail about a story there where the the living standards where they were staying and training were like absolutely horrible, like third rate, you know, infestations. Um, and the, the other... Uh, people who were in this training facility basically started relying on him to kind of, Hey, why don't you push this up the chain of command? And he did it. It was kind of denied. And then he did again by going around the person who was directly in front of him. And it set off some alarm bells and basically his boss's boss, or at least the, the administrator's administrator actually came and they, they had a, a talk with him. Um, but it was, it was, it was nothing explicit, but it was basically telling him that, you know, you did good, but you need to know where your place is and follow orders if you want to go anywhere. Um, so he spent a pretty lengthy time as a contractor in the CIA and he bounced around a lot. And what I've learned from this um, is that us programmers and, uh, and systems administrators, we get way too much access to basically anything. You ever, you ever look at like kind of the database systems that you work on or the applications that you work on and service you work on and realize, man, I really have access to just about anything I need here. And there's, and it, it's like outside of the standard chain of command, you know? Yeah. And that's pretty normal. I think, um, I do think about that. Sometimes I think, man, I, if I wanted to, or I don't necessarily phrase it this way in my head, but I think, you know, I could do, if I didn't know what I was doing with the access that I have, I could really break things in a, in a nearly irreparable way. But at the same time, the reason we have access is because we're the ones building it. It's like saying, you know, like the architects don't have access to, you know, some room of the building that they're building. You know what I mean? Like, so we kind of have to have the keys of the kingdom because we're building the kingdom. Yeah. I mean, the IT people have so much access because nobody else, nobody else knows how to do IT. So he was talking about a job that he had where, um, there was different access levels of information. Um, and there was this one access level that was basically, it was like beyond the, the highest level and, uh, these sorts of files. And it was one of the files in which he realized that there was a mass surveillance program going on, but one of the, but basically these files, maybe only like 10 or 15 people in the entire nation are supposed to have access to them. But him being a systems administrator, if that file sits on a computer for a certain length of time, because basically the uh, the person who is trying to gain access to it logs into a system. And I don't know whether it was like a dumb terminal or whatever, but logs into a system, uh, access the file, downloads it locally to that computer, reads it, and might leave it on there. 
And if it's left on there for a, a lengthy period of time, it gets flagged. And he, being in a systems administrator, is supposed to clean off that computer to ensure that nobody else gets access to that particular file. But he's supposed to actually look, open up the file and look at it to make sure he's actually cleaning off something that he's supposed to clean off. So here he is. He doesn't have, he doesn't actually have access to these things, but because by virtue of being an IT person, he has access to these kind of things. That's kind of a weird chicken or the egg situation there, just in terms of like national security with those documents. Yeah, the, the person in charge of ensuring the security has access to it, even though he doesn't have the access levels to supposed to be able to read it, but he needs to open it up to verify like the numbers and everything. So it was kind of an interesting story. And he actually talks about when he was off in Hawaii because he was in, he was in Hawaii. They were hoping the weather would be better for his epilepsy because he actually had epilepsy or has epilepsy. And, um, he had this position. It was some sort of documentation position as a contractor and he was basically monitoring stuff on his computer. And apparently there's a certain way that they disseminate information for each person who's, um, who's basically a, an agent of, of the CIA or the NSA. And, um, so he realized it was kind of inefficient. And so what he started to do is he started to scrape a bunch of systems to collate this data into a better, more accessible way. And at one point he gets, you know, he gets blocked and so he calls up the person or he talks to the person basically who blocked it. And they're like, Hey, why are you, you know, accessing all these things? And so he explains to him what he built and then shows him what he built. And the guy looks at it. He's like, Oh, this is great. And then turns his access back on. <laughs> so, so when you have it people connecting with other potential it people who see a value in a thing that's been created, a lot of times you forget about the security implications involved. Right. So he, see, he had almost unfettered access to data. In fact, when he initially started to think about, the the surveillance programs and what was going on he was supposed to go to a conference and it was a conference where they were going to talk about china's mass surveillance program and there was a person who was supposed to give a speech or at least give a talk who couldn't make it so they were like hey ed do you want to give a talk on this and he said sure the caveat being that he needed to do it like within a short period of time so he started to do research on china's surveillance mechanisms which got him thinking of um, the U.S.'s surveillance mechanisms. And so he started to do research for this presentation, basically so that he could uncover, um, you know, what China's surveillance was compared to the U.S. And it kind of sparked, you know, it kind of ignited him in, in realizing that if China has this, you know, what does the U.S. have? And that started his search. Um, so really a lot of what he ran into was purely by happenstance and by being in a situation where the combination of IT and security and just him working in the intelligence community, he had all this information available to him. It's almost inevitable that given given enough time, somebody with that kind of access, and then of course technologists, you know, we find that kinship, we built a cool tool to automate some work, which means great, I can work even less during the course of a day. Uh, but because of that kinship among technologists, yeah, with enough time and access, you're eventually going to start thinking, wait a minute, what else is in here? In fact, I had listened to, um, I unsubscribed from Joe, the Joe Rogan podcast, but um, I went, I just found it in the um, Google podcast app and I brought up the episode with, with Snowden because he was just on there like last week or two weeks ago. And part of the stories that Edward was talking about was that one of the first things he looked for was uh uh, area 54 like actual he was looking for actual alien stuff and um i thought that was a funny little thing we talked about 
you know, he had all this access and he just wanted to see, was there actually any sort of file or documentation about, um, you know, any UFOs that have been docked in area, what is it, 51? Area was, 51, yeah. Yeah. Uh, for those who haven't listened to the interview, he did not find anything. So, good chance <laughs> there are no secret bases with alien ships in them. By all means, storm area 51 now and let me know what happens. <laughs> right, yeah, good luck. So you unsubscribe. So you, I, I, I mean, Joe Rogan's comedy, I find to be entertaining. I actually, um, my wife and I went to go see him, uh, when he was in Washington and I've tried to get into his podcast, um, a little bit, but unfortunately it's like, he almost has one like almost every day. And it's, it's like two and a half hours long, depending on who's on and who's not. I mean, he's had some, some real marathon runners and I just, I don't have the capacity to absorb that amount of talk and, and information. Cause it's, it's not, I mean, they're always high, so it's not exactly a linear discussion. Discussion. Right. Um, and, and he has a good job of absorbing information and repeating it back, but he also has a tendency to give, um, equal, equal time and to try to treat, treat. It's good to treat everybody as a human being, but he does have some, um, uh, not so savory individuals on his show on occasion and in trying to humanize them. I mean, I don't know if that's a hundred percent necessary. Um, so, so, you know, I mean, good comedy, you know, entertaining comedy, some good podcast episodes, a little too lengthy and uh occasionally in trying to do the right thing i think he he trips over the line and and gives a little too much credence to to the wrong thing yeah i think he's a little he's a little bit of a sycophant i think in that sense like um he panders to the guests and i think that's probably a good thing if you're if your your show is predicated on having guests um but the the edward snowden interview was one such marathon episode uh, so I didn't listen to all of it, but I listened to about uh, an hour, 45 minutes worth, just, you know, enough to get to work. Um, yeah. And that, what you mentioned just with, with Rogan, um, that's why I, I unsubscribed. I basically stopped listening after he had Alex Jones on because I thought that um, literally what you said, that I thought that he was, he was not calling him out on stuff and actually egging him on. And I think that, and this really kind of goes into this information age with uh, kind of living in this post-fact, post-intellectual society where um, if I read it, it's true because my it, it makes me feel good kind of world now. Um, uh, I'm trying to loosely correlate this with like technology and security. But the bottom line is I think that if somebody is deliberately um, saying untrue things or is mentally unhinged and says things that are so far out of left field, um, you, you don't give that the same weight as, as like a scientist, like Neil deGrasse Tyson coming in and talking about, um, you know, string theory. And then Alex Jones coming on and talking about like lizard people theory. They're not the same thing <laughs> and they don't deserve equal weight to your point. So that's why I don't listen to Joe Rogan, but I did listen for the, the Snowden and I did listen to Edward Snowden. And when we talked about him um, before, I said, I, I, you know, I'm I'm ambivalent about him and um and by that, I mean, I, I have strong feelings both ways. I think that what he did was certainly brave. I mean, he doesn't get to live at home anymore, and that definitely must suck. Um, but also, I can't, I'm just so cynical that I can't believe that there wasn't some component that, was self, that wasn't self-serving. It's just hard for, I, there's, there's nothing that he's done or said, or that I've ever heard, rumors even, that would imply that he had some sort of gain. In fact, he had everything to lose, and he did lose it. But I still am like... It's so selfless. I'm just kind of like, well, what else? But you read the book, so we'll continue on. But yeah, that's that's um that's sort of my thing with Snowden was. I think it was funny that he went for aliens. X file fan X Files fans will be disappointed. And he does seem like a sincere guy, a little bit um uh I don't know, listening to him talk on the Joe Rogan show 
Uh, I didn't get the sense that he was full of it. I, I thought he sounded very sincere. He did come off very like a person who is easy to talk to and easy to listen to. But I, I have to admit, I'm still I'm still skeptical. Yeah, and some of it, some when you go over his childhood, some of his his earlier years. I mean, it's the typical awkward, you know, computer science guy who who would rather spend more time in front of a computer than with real human beings. And you know, I hate to classify any behavior like that as autism or as um, Asperger's syndrome or, or somewhere on the spectrum. But clearly, there's a personality type involved, and a lot of the personality types who get involved in things like computers are very regimented, very uh, structured, very rules like. Um, and you'll hear a lot of times people in, you know, programming or in computer science use the term, what's well, the principle of it? Um, cause, cause, cause there are very specific principled, Oh, we have to, you know, this is, this is why we have to do it this way. It's, it's just a principle of it. Um, and so you have to kind of wonder with some of the information he got into and, and if his patriotism is accurate, cause, cause he did seem, at least in his memoir, he came across as somebody who was extremely patriotic towards the ideas of the United States and the constitution. What he saw to him was against the U S constitution and against the people of the United States. And so he saw that. And for the principle of it, he decided that, you know, something had to be done and he realized that he was in a position to actually do something. But when he starts to do it, there is this, um, there are some interesting things that happen. Uh, one is that he had an extreme paranoia about getting caught and he was extremely calculated in how he did things. So he looked at it and he was like, well, if I took my computer and I went to a coffee shop, there might be cameras at the coffee shop. They could see that my Mac address, you know, on the computer, um, even though, you know, so they could match me up that way. So instead of going to like a public, what, cause he, in order to contract these journalists, he had to first contact them through normal channels before convincing them to actually um, use an encrypted um, version of communication. And so what he ended up doing, he did war riding. He basically drove around with an antenna on his car and mapped out all of the uh, open access Wi-Fi points in, until he found a bunch of them and basically used each one of them in a randomized pattern in order to contact these journalists. It could be on the top of a building. It could have been, you know, out near the woods somewhere, you know, where there was a, you know, a high Wi-Fi signal because of towers or whatever. I'm sure it wasn't like Xfinity open Wi-Fi or whatever. Right. Barely get any signal off of that. Um, but he basically did a lot of war ride in order to get this information in order to contact these journalists. Um, and it was, so it was kind of like it, it, and he used, he used basically a Linux laptop, he used a la laptop with Linux tails on it. So it basically, uh, uh, wiped as soon as he, he shut it down as far as it didn't retain any information. So he was extremely, uh, and, and as well, he should have been, but he was extremely, calculating in everything he did. So when we talked about citizen four, um, we talked about how calculating he seemed and how paranoid he seemed on the video. No, that's how he was in, in real life. Apparently, at least that's what he recorded in his memoir. You know, I'm almost ashamed to admit this. I can't remember how he was exposed. I don't remember how he got caught. He gave an interview. He, he basically knew that eventually he, he knew that at some point, cause he was still working for the government. Um, one of the things that he actually did was he changed. This is, this is how calculating he was. This was how very principled and specific he was. He had all this information on X key score, which was one of the, the tools that was being used, which was, um, basically like a search engine for everything, you know, take type in, you know, Bill Ahern and find all of the information, all the social media, everything that's ever been put together about you. So he had all this information on it, but he wanted to get more hands-on experience with it. So he literally looked for a job that offered him an opportunity to basically get closer to this tool and took it. 
And so he actually spent time away from Hawaii back in DC in order to take this job just to acquire more information. And when he ended up, in fact, just so you guys know, like the whole idea of him being so paranoid that he thought he was going to get caught and, and going through all the things that he was going through that bit alone is well worth the read of the books. Like that's, that's worth the price of admission because he even talks about when he gets all. So, so get this. Um, he, he, you know how he had the Rubik's cube. And of course that's a plot point, the Oliver Stone thing. And well, he, he started bringing that to work with him early and always had it with him and always carried it with him, always used it in the hallways. And he was basically desensitizing all of the people where he worked. Um, when it came to his use of that Rubik's cube, he became, Oh, that guy with the Rubik's cube. And he would talk to the guards um, frequently, ask how they were doing. He even bought other Rubik's Cubes for people in the office once he became known as Rubik's Cube guy. Just so that it was it just so it was a common thing. So that when he used that Rubik's Cube to store data and walk out on it, there was not a second thought about why he had that or even an attempt to look at it. It was absolutely fascinating to read that part of the book and how he was so very specifically mapped out this plan over a long period of time about how he was going to desensitize the guards and the other people in the office in order to be able to smuggle out this data. It was fascinating. And so when he did decide to leak this information to journalists and he had made some decisions early on, he said, he was he going to publish it himself? He could have, but he was like, I don't want to do that because they can basically, you know, deny it all and people won't think it's real. He was going to dump it to WikiLeaks, but WikiLeaks started to publish everything and not actually vet it. So then he was like, I'm back in the same boat as if I were to self-publish it. And then that's when he came out with, you know, Glenn Greenwald, some people from the Washington Post, Laura Potras, and these other journalists that he felt would handle it much better. And when he leaked it, he basically fled the country in order to leak it. And he knew that eventually his job would be like, where is he? And they would put two to two together and know that he was the person who leaked it. And that's basically what, what started to happen. His, you know, his girlfriend at the time, by the way, he left her and never told her anything about this, which is amazing. And they ended up getting married, but he basically kept all this from her so that she had plausible deniability when he left, didn't tell her anything about it. Um, but then eventually they were able to, you know, once he, he was in Moscow and you know, he has asylum, they were able to, to, uh, spend some time together and communicate. They did even eventually get married, um, but she was drugged through the dirt, um, you know, because she was, she was not an exotic dancer, but she was like a, um, like a pole dancer, like the, uh, the exercise pole dancing and like stuff like that. Right. Like a fitness thing. Yeah. I think it was more of a fitness thing than an exotic thing. If it was an exotic thing, it was more of a, um, um, it was more like the, the art house stuff as opposed to being a stripper. Um, right. So, so, so basically he decides to give an interview because he knew he was going to get caught eventually. And he wanted to be able to tell his own story before information started leaking out of the press. Interesting. Yeah. And, uh, he made some comments. Um, what was interesting was when, they canceled his visa, obviously, so he couldn't he couldn't fly anywhere. Canceled his passport, I should say, so that he couldn't fly anywhere. And what I found to be interesting is there seemed to be, at least in his memoir, he he seemed to imply that because WikiLeaks did send somebody to go and help him, right? Send somebody to be like his advisor, and he got the feeling that Assange and WikiLeaks were trying to help him because they felt like they failed Ch uh, Chelsea Manning. 
um, which I thought was an interesting take because WikiLeaks and Edward Snowden since, um, you know, his exile have not exactly been on the same page about a lot of things, but that early help that was being offered seemed to be, um, an offering because they felt bad about the uh, handling of Chelsea Manning and how Manning, uh, was arrested and put in prison. They felt bad. Yeah, WikiLeaks felt bad. So, so he actually spent a lot of time with one of uh, with this woman who was who was basically an advisor, and she helped him navigate, um, you know, the the, the Hong Kong and uh, and uh, um, Moscow, um, and gave him a lot of advice because on behalf of WikiLeaks because they were basically trying to find a way to give him a better outcome than Chelsea Manning received. Oh, well, that's at least something. And that's kind of an interesting story. Really, it, it kind of pushes the needle for me in a different direction. Like, not in a different direction, but a kind of... It's um, Again, since we're assuming that this is stuff that he is being truthful about, it does kind of push me more in the direction of maybe this guy's legit. But I try to think if I was in a situation like that, I don't know that I could just sit on it, right? Like, I'd be like, man, this is awful, this stuff that I know. Like, what can I do to protect myself but still get this information out? So... It's it's very interesting to me. Yeah, it would have been such a bad whistleblower. I would have probably leaked the first sentence that uh, that came out that looked kind of iffy. Like, wait a minute, what is this uh, crazy stuff going on here? Yeah. I would have never got. I would have never got to the beat of the uh, of the espionage. I don't know if I'd have done the war driving. I might have done the old Pringles can on a Wi-Fi trick. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like sit like you know almost a mile away from some Wi-Fi spot, like blasting the Wi-Fi signal with a Pringles can. Um, and, uh, you know, sitting and doing it that way, I would have been too lazy to, <laughs> to take all the necessary precautions. <laughs> so one of the, a couple of funny things actually came out of this. One is that at some point Snowden asked a woman from WikiLeaks and I forget her name and I apologize for, for not having that up. Um, but he, he, he basically asked her why she was helping him. And one of the comments she made was, you know, besides somebody has to be the last person to see you alive. <laughs> so, and then um, what I didn't know was apparently Burger King in the Moscow airport fed him <laughs> while he was while he was holed up there for for weeks, weeks upon weeks. And and uh, I, I'm assuming they gave it to him for free, but, every, uh, you know, or he had some money or whatever. And uh, because of that, he's actually been pretty loyal to Burger King. So even where he's at in his whatever hotel he's at, you know, in uh, in Moscow, when he goes out to grab a quick bite, he goes to Burger King to pick up that food, which I find to be funny because I don't find Burger King to be all that tasteful. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're healthy for sure. That's the one thing I still got hung up on. I just can't get past it. Of all places to go, um, Russia, it just, it's like the one, I think that's the main piece that really, I get that Russia probably thinks it's great that an American citizen, even one who purports to be as patriotic as Snowden, still kind of, you know, shafted the man over here. But like, still, Putin's a villain. He's like a legitimate tyrant. You know what I mean? So like. I, I don't know if it went in the specific detail on why the route took him that way, but basically he went from Hong Kong and I think he was supposed to land in Moscow and then take a connecting flight, flight uh, connecting flight to Ecuador. And in the air, when he was on the, the Hong Kong uh, flight, they basically, um, that's when his passport got canceled. So when he landed in Moscow, which this was kind of like, this was the U.S.'s fault. When he landed in Moscow, he couldn't go anywhere. So he was he was literally stuck in Moscow because the United States canceled his passport while he was in the air. Wow. And uh, they they thought about sneaking him onto other planes for him to get off, even, even despite the fact that he did not have um, a passport. But um, the United States 
I think they've rerouted a, a diplomat or a president of uh, a European country. I think it, it might even been Italy. Um, I don't I don't remember off the top of my head, but they they basically rerouted a very important person and grounded that plane looking for Snowden. So if they were willing to do that, then uh, yeah, he basically was pretty much stuck. Yeah, and he he does say that they they basically put him into a room and and told him you know hey we can help you out if you help us out. And he, he was pretty specific that I can't help you. You know, there were so many keys. He basically, you know, used an encryption key to do encryption keys in order to secure this data. And when he decided to finally flee um, or finally leave Hong Kong, he destroyed the portion of the key that he had on hand so that he did not know or even be able to have access to the information um, that way, even if they tortured him. Again, and this might come from his military upbringing or just upbringing or just how very calculating he was. Even if they tortured him, he wouldn't be able to reveal to them any information. And ultimately, they decided to let him go and get him out of the airport and, and gave him temporary asylum because it started to become a media spectacle um, there at the Moscow airport, international media all over the place trying to get a hold of you know Edward Snowden. So it was disrupting the airport. And so they finally decided to let him leave. Hmm. All right. I mean, that is cloak and dagger stuff. I mean, that they, certainly he has information that uh, Russia would love to get. Right. So I, I'm, I'm certain that they have their own motives for being friendly that are probably not actually friendly. But I guess that's I guess, you know, Snowden definitely sounds like a guy who's smart enough to navigate those waters. Uh, you know, I, I give you know, I give him more credit than I did previously because reading his, and again, I don't know how much it was embellished, but literally there was a time where he was essentially a, a spy. He was basically the, the technical consultant to, um, you know, to, to CIA agents, you know, espionage agents who were trying to gather information and gain assets overseas. So, I mean, literally this, a lot of this was spycraft, um, and it was spycraft with, with computers and it's everything you would expect from, um, from some sort of, you know, cyberpunk hacking, you know, attempt and a dystopian government. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, ultimately the conclusion of his entire memoir is that he wholly believes that, that privacy and security and by, by virtue of that encryption is a fundamental right of American citizens or people in general that must be protected. And to him, the bill of rights, um, was specifically created to limit law enforcement in favor of personal freedoms. And to, you know, to him, if you read down the bill of rights, these are all things that limit the ability of the government and law enforcement to encroach upon citizens' rights. And he views privacy, security, and encryption as fundamental pieces of those rights. And that's essentially what he's driving towards both in his memoir and in a lot of the interviews that he's been given lately. Well, good. I mean, if, if, if nothing else, if he could stand as a symbol for that, that would be a victory. We could certainly use some positive symbols this day and age. How's your dog doing? Uh, she's noisy downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if anyone didn't hear that, Bill's dog just barked in the background. Um, so no, I'm not just doing a random non sequitur. <laughs> um, I could be, you wouldn't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I recommend the book to anybody who wants to get a little more into the head of Edward Snowden. Um, I thought Citizen Four again was a was a fantastic documentary. Still haven't watched the Oliver Stone movie. Um, I'm sure that embellishes things far beyond Snowden would in his own memoir. Um, but the combination of Citizen Four and the memoir ought to give you a somewhat of a clearer picture on at least who he thinks he is 
and what he thinks he was doing. And then you can kind of judge for yourself whether that's really what he should have done or not. But I do think that some of the, the uh, negativity and some of the attacks on the anonymous whistleblower today kind of shows you that maybe he did might make the right choice by leaking this to journalists and then hightailing it out of the country. Because again, like you said, all of the problems he ran into, that was during the Obama administration. And that was supposed to be liberal. Uh, imagine in an ultra conservative, you know, very, um, I don't want to say authoritarian, but definitely kind of a, um, a conservative war hawk style government. Um, who knows what would have happened today? Well, certainly um, with an administration that prioritizes the appearance of strength, you know, and the ability to um, maintain control with a heavy hand. Uh, whistleblowers, as we're learning now, aren't exactly favored by uh, the current administration. So he would probably have had a much tougher time. Definitely. Um, so that's all I have for this episode. Again, I just wanted to do a follow up on the Edward Snowden one that we didn't go over a couple of key points from uh, his his book, Permanent Record. Did you have any final thoughts, Bill? I don't. All right. Well, just to remind everybody, you can go to codepunk.io to read our blog posts, catch up on some other podcast episodes. We actually, I have a pod link now. It's a, a pod.link um, basically allows you to uh, search and uh, search podcasts and, and find a podcast page. If you go to pod.link slash codepunk, it kind of shows you um, all of the iTunes links, st- Stitcher links. So you're able to like click on that and, and go to the correct subscribe thing. That was pretty cool. Um, sign up for the bots and beer newsletter, of course. And hey, we have a growing community on Keybase. Um, I think we're up to like 41 members and it has gotten pretty lively lately. So if you go to keybase.io, you sign up. It's an encrypted end-to-end application. Join the CodePunk team. Come chat at us. It's uh, it's pretty cool to, to, to see it grow and kind of see the technology evolve. Yeah, it's got some pretty smart conversations going on in there. All right. Until next time, talk to everyone later. Take care, everybody. That's it for this episode of Code Punk. You can subscribe to this podcast on Google Play, iTunes, and Stitcher, or listen to it on the web at codepunk.io. You can find Bill on Twitter at Norathustra and Michael on Twitter at Zool. <laughs>